Full contact, high-risk football is not a viable option for the fall. How do you justify those kind of rates and then talk about an increase? The way we operated executive orders in March was appropriate for that time. And the way we operate them now should be different. If the man in the White House had made half the decisions that the governor has made, we wouldn't have 190,000 deaths in America. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, bringing the show to you remotely, as well as our panelists in three other different locations. You just heard Democratic House Majority Leader Matt Ritter talking about how much power Governor Ned Lamont needs to deal with COVID-19. Also, Republican House Minority Leader Themis Claritis explaining how her caucus feels about the governor's executive powers in this pandemic. We heard from a member of the public at a hearing focusing on electric utilities. And also in the mix is probably the most controversial story in the last week. Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference Director Glenn Lungarini announcing that high school football games as we know it won't be played this season. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But first on the panel today, Russell Blair is back content editor at the Hartford Current. You can follow him at Russell Blair CT. Russell, are you there? It's great to be here virtually with you guys. <laughs> also making her wheelhouse debut is Kayla Torres Ocasio. She's investigative editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Kayla, welcome to the wheelhouse. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. And Colin McEnroe is here, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio, and he's a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy. And you can join us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Now, uh, just on Friday, a bipartisan panel of General Assembly leaders voted to extend Governor Ned Lamont's emergency authority to deal with COVID-19. His power to essentially create temporary state laws now extends through February 9th. All the Republicans on this special bipartisan committee were against the extension. All the Democrats voted for it. So let's talk about uh, this uh, committee. And again, uh, Colin, we talked about this briefly last week about the process. This is no surprise that uh, the special panel voted to extend, uh, allow the governor to extend. They could have objected. Uh, but, you know, why... Is this an issue now? I believe when uh, the governor first expanded his coronavirus powers back in the spring, that vote was unanimous. So what has changed, Colin? Right. So that's a really good question. Um, I would say this. <clears throat> there are two ways of perceiving reality. One of them is uh, the, the process has worked. Uh, the infection rate is low. The death rate is low. The hospitalization rate is low. So let's get going. Let's get out there and do all the things we haven't been doing. The other way to perceive reality is... Uh, all of those conditions are true because this style of public health works. It works really well. It has caused Connecticut to be in a superior health and uh, economic condition than you know almost all of the rest of the country. And, and almost all of the rest of the country is almost like a laboratory to which Connecticut can turn its eyes periodically and say, oh, well, there's what happens if you open the bars, or there's what's ha ha what, has ha what happens if you list, list uh, the restrictions on the percentage of seats in a restaurant that can be full. I, I happen to be in this latter camp, as you can probably tell. You know, my thought about this is that this has worked. It's a very successful policy. It has put Connecticut in a position where it's hard to imagine what other state you would want to be living in right now, unless, of course, you want a bar. So, um, you know, and just to go back to the, the famous Churchill quote about democracy, 
it's you know suppose he said it was the worst system of government except for all the other possibilities and and I think Ned and his emergency powers fall into that category too it's the worst system of government except anything else that could be contemplated one of the problems is that the republicans I mean, they're in kind of a double bind. You have to be a little bit sympathetic. They made it political, right? They made this a political issue. They broke with Ned along political lines uh, about this. And you can't blame them entirely for that. They're the loyal opposition. They're supposed to do it. But it raises questions like, if you'll make this political, what else will you make political that shouldn't be political? Uh, at some point, I hope we can talk about the, like what's going to happen when vaccines roll out. I don't even know what role the governor will play in communicating with, with the public about whether the new vaccines are safe, whether they're really ready to go, whether this is a rush job. But there are things like that and resurgences of the disease in schools and colleges and along our borders where, yeah, you know, it actually is good if it doesn't become political. And the kind of consultation that the Republicans are asking for, you know, they don't really have a lot of things that they're saying, well, he's doing this wrong and he's doing that wrong. They just want to be at the table. The question is, can anything productive come out of that? But at the same time, Colin, uh, they're elected to do this job. Are they doing their job reflecting what they're hearing from constituents? Uh, there is a, 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 a group, maybe a minority, I don't know how many Connecticut residents agree with uh, these powers being extended, but are they reflecting what their constituents want, where they're worried about uh, what this means and they want to see their legislators making these decisions? Yeah, well, first of all, <laughs> I, I will confess that having covered the Connecticut State Legislature and having watched them try to deal with much simpler issues, with, which would appear to have fairly straightforward outcomes, I don't look forward to turning something like this over to them. You know, they really have a lot of trouble getting basic kinds of things done. They don't proceed for the most part in an orderly fashion. They wind up engaging in political horse trading about issues. I mean, I literally was there one night where there was horse trading going on about early childhood education and I think Sunday deer hunting. If you can have this one, then we get that one. Well, those two issues are completely unrelated. They don't belong in the same conversation. That's how the general General Assembly operates. That's how it's always operated. It's a very chaotic environment. So the notion that somehow or other we're going to put these things to a vote uh, and and, and you know, get involved in that kind of process, I understand. We have checks and balances. There's a reason. The reason a reason the Constitution is set up the way it is. But we also have emergency powers for emergencies. This is an emergency. Russell Blair, what do you think and what, with what Colin has shared, his observations covering uh, the Capitol for many years? Is this something that lawmakers uh, shouldn't be making a big deal about? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, he makes a great point about, uh, you know, imagine if you put every single thing that Lamont has done via executive order up for a vote. Um, my colleague Chris Keating had a story where he talked to House Majority Leader Matt Ritter, and, you know, he said we could have a two-day debate about, you know, how late should, you know, bars be allowed to reopen or should bars be allowed to reopen and, and in what capacity? And, you know, a lot of these decisions that the governor has had to make, uh, he's had to make very quickly, very swiftly. Um, you know, certainly he's got advisors, uh, you know, on, on the public health side that he's talking to uh, before he makes these decisions, but you need the ability to move quickly and, and unilaterally. And that's something that the General Assembly has never been uh, too good about moving fast and, and deliberately on on issues, uh, you know, and, and also to Colin's point, I think one thing you can't forget is that we do have uh, a November election coming up. We did have a legislative session that 
uh, was basically shut down in March uh, due to the coronavirus. So there wasn't a lot that got accomplished legislatively this this year. So I think that that may be part of what you're seeing this Republican opposition uh, arising from is the ability to go back to their constituents and, and say, you know, look, we were fighting for the bars to get reopened. We were fighting for the restaurants to have their capacity increased as we head into the winter so that they can, uh, you know, make a little bit more money as, as outdoor dining, uh, you know, goes away. Uh, and, and they've been sort of cut out uh, of the process. So I think there's a yearning to, to do something. Uh, we did see the special session with the police accountability bill. There's discussion about another special session coming up later this month um, for a utility bill that would reform Eversource and UI and in response to, you know, how they handled tropical, uh, the tropical storm last month. But I think generally, uh, you know, the, the way that Governor Lamont has handled this is probably the most effective way you could handle it, even if you don't like the fact that, you know, this is the governor and he has a tremendous amount of power and he can make these decisions. But the alternative of having to try to have an up or down vote on, on every single matter, uh, you know, would just be chaotic. And, and I think one thing that uh, has gotten sort of lost in this conversation as people are, are pointing to the low infection numbers and, and pushing to reopen um, is that, you know, just because Connecticut is doing very well in, in containing the virus doesn't mean that the virus is any less deadly than it, than it was in March. It doesn't mean that it spreads any less fast than it did in March. And, and you know, we've seen a couple of these instances, uh, you know, there was the case in Danbury where there was a spike in cases. They had to push back the school reopening and take some local measures there. We saw in Norwich where there was a, a spike uh, associated with a nursing home and some hospital workers got sick. So, you know, even though Connecticut is doing a very good job, uh, you know, tops in, in the country in containing this, it doesn't mean that if they stop these measures all of a sudden that there couldn't be, uh, you know, some, some big community spread here. So I think that's something that people need to take into consideration when they're looking at, uh, you know, moving forward with a further reopening. Kayla, we heard from a listener who tweeted, this is the sort of needless partisan bickering and grandstanding that infuriates voters, especially during a crisis. Is that the pulse of, of what the public uh, feels when they, when they hear uh, these arguments uh, between uh, politicians these days? I mean, I think it depends on which side you're on. If you agree with the Republicans and you're saying, yeah, they should be able to have a say. If you don't agree with the Republicans, you might say, well, you know, yeah, you got to stop bickering. This is exactly why you shouldn't have the <laughs> the ability to say something because you can't ever agree on anything. So how do you get anything done if you can't ever agree on anything? I think one of the hardest parts of all of this is that things are changing so quickly day to day. As Russell just said, you know, one day everything's going along fine and then Danbury has a spike. Um, so everything is just changing so fast. And I think that's why the governor having the ability to just say, okay, this needs to, something needs to change. We need to shut something to something down. I think that's where, you know, things are, are, are necessary because things are changing very fast. My son just started school today and we didn't get any kind of supply list, any kind of information um, from his teacher until like two or three days ago because, and the reasoning was things are changing so fast. One day they're allowed to use gators um, in school and, and some you know specific kind of coverings. And then the next day, no, that's not allowed anymore. It has to be a face mask. So, you know, things are changing so fast in this COVID-19 time that I think that's that's one of the, the, the things that makes it the hardest to be able to argue that we need to be able to have the time to argue these things out. Sometimes you don't have the time to do that. 
Mm. Uh, speaking of uh, you know how things are changing, both guidelines uh, from that we're hearing from our state, uh, public health officials, what we hear from the CDC. There was a new poll from Siena College in Data Haven that found most Connecticut residents support mask wearing, but some have doubts about the COVID nineteen uh, vaccine. Colin, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because you'd mentioned uh, the vaccine earlier in the sense that we're hearing that uh, a vaccine uh, may be coming online uh, once it gets emergency approval if that happens, but there's also the question of how many people in the public will take this vaccine when it becomes available. Right. And I, I just want to say quickly about that poll. Um, I haven't been able to see the raw um, polling. It, it's not up on Data Haven's own site. They may have released it to the reporters like Alex Putterman, who wrote the stories about it, but they they haven't. I mean, I, I like to look at how the questions are worded. I look at, like to look at cross tabs and stuff like that. So because I, I thought the 20 percent number was kind of low. And, and, and there is, I think, a second number in that poll that uh, might describe the people who we, we often recall call vaccine hesitant now. I mean, and that's kind of a new class of people to a certain degree. There, there was always kind of a hardcore group of anti-science people who are opposed to measles vaccines and stuff like that. Now you've got a new group of people, people who, in fact, are quite enthusiastic about science and are questioning whether scientific practices are being adequately followed right now. Is this a safe vaccine? At what point will I know it's a, face, a safe vaccine? Yesterday, Astra AstraZeneca in England shut down its trials because of one adverse reaction, but, you know, a pretty serious uh, myelitis uh, reaction. That's a good thing. That's actually a good story. AstraZeneca is doing what you're supposed to do in a phase three trial. But that's how those things work. They, uh, they're long-running trials with cohorts of 30,000 participants, and you've got to watch them all carefully. Uh, you've got to see what kind of adverse side effects there might be in it. Sometimes it takes a while for those adverse side effects to develop. So any a person who's vaccine hesitant right now, I mean, I can't wait for a flu shot day at Connecticut Public. I'm always there. I always get my flu shot. I think vaccines are terrific. I would be a little nervous for a while if I don't think that the phase three uh, parts of these trials have been run effectively and honestly with a real eye towards downstream side effects. I, it would take me a while to go and get this vaccine, even if I, I were able to get it. Um, and and I'm I really am way on the spectrum, on the on the end of the spectrum that's very enthusiastic about immunology. <laughs> but this process, because it's been politicized, because it's got a name like warp speed, uh, you know, it it really has churned up doubts. And I actually think Data Haven's number might be a little bit low. Mm. Uh, Russell, uh, when we think about you know education about vaccines and letting people know uh, once the, these trials are completed, if this is what's gonna it's what's gonna take to go back to normal or what we used to think of as normal, from our state perspective, you know, should we be hearing from DPH or, or Governor Lamont uh, to raise awareness? I mean, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Is this something that people will just follow from from hearing from the federal government what they hear in the news? Um, you know, I think one thing that's interesting about the vaccine is, you know, you have to think in, into how this pushes out everything that we've thought about. You know, once there's a vaccine, we can return to large indoor events. We're not going to have to wear masks anymore. You know, those types of things. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a little while longer. You know, certainly one issue is going to be the distribution of the vaccine. How is that going to play out? How many doses um, are, are going to be available uh, at the beginning. Uh, our state's going to be making decisions about um, who gets those. You know, there was some communication um, recently to 
state health departments, um, you know, from the federal government, uh, talking about, you know, potential uh, availability of the vaccine this fall and preparing state health departments uh, to, to deal with that. Uh, you know, one question I certainly would have is, uh, you know, once there is a, a safe and effective vaccine available, um, how is that going to play out among school children? Uh, you know, we had a, uh, seems like forever ago, but there was uh, a public hearing uh, way back in, in February or March um, about eliminating the religious exemption for vaccines for school children. And there was a lot of parents that showed up that had a lot of concerns that were pushing back against that, saying that the state shouldn't be mandating, uh, you know, that children get certain immunizations. Uh, you know, you could certainly see in the future uh, people pushing for uh, a coronavirus vaccine to be required for, for kids to go back to school for in-person learning. Uh, you know, if that was something that was proposed, I imagine you would see um, some pretty fierce pushback against that, uh, you know, especially uh, with, with a newer vaccine like that. But that may be something that some public health experts say, you know, would, would be necessary if we're to fully uh, reopen schools in person and, and take away some of these safeguards uh, that have been put in place. So I think that's one area that'll be uh, really interesting to watch. Kayla, I mentioned uh, this poll by uh, Data Haven, and one of their findings is that there's still low trust in uh, the Black and Hispanic community about uh, a potential COVID vaccine. This sounds problematic because we think about how uh, Black and Hispanic Americans and other people of color are disproportionately impacted by COVID. And we think about uh, the people that have died uh, from this disease. I mean, what's your takeaway when you hear that there are there's still that mistrust in the community, and, and how can public health officials address that? Well, I think there has to be more information out there. I think, you know, we hear about these polls, you know, when they come out, there isn't enough information out there on a regular basis telling people how these studies are going with these vaccines. So I think you're you're sitting there thinking, do I get the vaccine or do I not? But how much information do you have about what the benefits of vaccine might be? I also think, I mean, I, I like, like Colin said, I am pro-vaccine. I, you know, but we have to also take into account there isn't a really large anti-vaccine movement. People are already kind of um, nervous about vaccines and doubting the, you know, vaccines that have been around for decades. And so here comes this new vaccine and, and you're even less aware of what's in these vaccines or what the effectiveness of this is. And so, you know, how do you make a decision to do something where when there's so much doubt around vaccines in general. Um, I mean, it is it is alarming that the, you know, the minority populations are because they are being, you know, negatively impacted by this in a way that, that other populations are, are, are not at, at the same rate, you know. Um, but I, I think it all comes down to that. I think it all comes down to people being really nervous about something that they don't know enough about. Could I just say two quick, thing, two quick things about this? One of them is, you know, I, there's an obvious reason for this, too. The the uh, population of color in the, in the United States legitimately thinks that it hasn't had uh, equitable access to the best health care. And it is somehow, some, in some occasions, been used as an experimental population. Uh, mm -hmm. And whether it's Tuskegee or the whole story of Henry, Henrietta Lacks and, mm -hmm. and her uh, cell line. I mean, our history is full of stories that would would, in fact, occasion a certain level of paranoia uh, in, among people of color. The other thing I just want to say, because it's really important, is there will be a point where 
if you look to the people who are really experts about this, you know, and I could rattle off 20 names for you right now, the people who are the scientists and epidemiologists, immunologists, virologists, who've really looked at all this, they will be able to tell us, I think, when the vaccine is safe, when it is run effectively through phase three trials and, and, and should be released. And so it's not like you'll never know when you can use the vaccine. You will, but you won't know from your usual sources. And when we talked about Operation Warp Speed earlier, Colin, I mean, I guess the fear is if some of these vaccines are put on a rushed line, that if there is some side effect, that that can scare people and, and that can be problematic, that they may not want to take the vaccine. Yeah, and the side effects, one thing that we know from just natural COVID infections is that some of the side effects turn up weeks down the line, you know, and some of the side effects include, include things like paralysis, uh, actions uh, that affect the heart uh, or major organs of the body. Um, and so you, you want to watch the, to whatever extent the, the vaccine triggers a mirror of the body's own reaction to uh, SARS-CoV-2. You want to give that time. You want to see what's happening because one of the things that's especially true about SARS-CoV-2 is that a lot of the harm is done not by the virus itself, but by the body's reaction to the virus. So if you're simulating virus and trying to create that reaction, you want to watch carefully how the body is reacting to your vaccine, uh, whatever inoculum substitute you're putting in there, whether it's a protein fragment or an adenovirus vector or uh, you know a, an attenuated version of the virus itself. You want to see how the body handles it and not for one day but for weeks so let's move on also related to measures to prevent the spread of coronavirus in our state many high school football players their parents and their coaches have fought against the possibility that the fall season could be canceled or maybe postponed to the spring to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The conference that governs high school sports, the CIAC announced on Friday, it would not be possible to play full contact 11 on 11 games because the Department of Public Health would not support it. Uh, the state health department suggesting playing games with fewer players in the field to reduce exposure. Coaches dislike that idea because it leaves linemen unable to play and high school players and others are having another rally about this issue at the state capitol today. Uh, Kayla, what's at stake for players and parents here? I mean, I think, you know, I think the, the biggest problem with what's happening now is the, and I, I honestly think this, this is the CIAC's decision to say, if we cancel now, we cannot have it in the spring. We will not have a spring season. That has been the biggest because now you have parents and players who are saying, wait a minute, we can't play now and we can't play later either, even though we don't know what's going to be happening in six months. I mean, you know, for a lot of um, high school students, especially the seniors, this is this is something that you looked forward to. This is something that you were, you know, excited about. And then all of a sudden you get this back and forth at the beginning of the, of the school of the summer, um, this back and forth can we do it? Maybe we can, you know what, we'll move forward. No, wait a minute. The DBH says no, you know, that's, that's been the CIA's biggest mistake was not only waffling on where do we stand on this, but then also saying, even if we decide, no, we're not going to go to the spring. We're just going to completely take that off the table because now you have parents saying, okay, we can't have it now and we can't have it later. So we want it now. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 tough decision to make, I think, for for DPH and for and for CIAC. But I think the waffling and the, and the kind of taking 
things off the table that haven't happened yet <laughs> is, is the hardest uh, part for parents and, and students to take. Uh, Russell, a lot of people, including some lawmakers, want Governor Lamont to weigh in, to, to have a role in this debate. Do you think that, that he should be speaking about this? Well, I mean, I, I think one thing that's important is, you know, the decision should be guided by public health. And we saw the recommendations from the State Department of Public Health saying, you know, they didn't believe 11 on 11 football was safe. But but I think the governor's role in this uh, should be to stand up and vocally back them and say, you know, look, we asked the public health experts and this is what they came back with. And this is unfortunate. But, you know, I'm, I trust my Department of Public Health and, and I'm going to stand by them and say, no, we can't have football this year. Instead, yesterday we saw, um, you know, this was after lawmakers wrote letters saying, hey, can we get all the sides in the room? Governor Lamont, can you have the CIAC and the DPH sit down and can we talk about this more? And he said, you know, certainly, you know, if I can help to broker that conversation, that's great. And, and the problem with that is, I think there will be another conversation and it doesn't seem like DPH is going to change its recommendation there. And they're the public health experts. So it goes to um, the point that was made earlier about just the back and forth on this. Um, my wife cross, coaches cross country and that's probably one of the sports where I think they're hoping um, that they can have some semblance of a regular season because it's a lower risk sport. But even with the non-football sports, you know, they've had uh, practice starting and then practice was postponed and then, um, you know, conditioning can start. They still don't know about what, what it's going to look like for, um, you know, cross-country meets. Um, I, I just think when you look at the issue of all the difficulties that schools are having just beginning the academic year, we've already seen several school districts that have had to uh, close schools for a couple of days or, or where students have gotten sick or staff have gotten sick. I, I think that um, there's so much riding on getting the school year up and running successfully that this is a place where, you know, it, it shouldn't be the governor's decision, but I think if his DPH is saying this, then he can be the messenger and saying, you know, this is what the public health experts are saying. And, um, you know, he, he did propose the idea of doing a, a spring season. Um, you know, as you said, CAAC doesn't seem interested in that, but I think there needs to be some public person who can say uh, enough with the back and forth. We asked the experts, this is what they came back with. We're disappointed, but we're going to move forward, uh, you know, with something else. Uh, you know, I was disappointed to see a quote in, in our newspaper today from House Speaker Joe Arasimowitz, who is also the Berlin High School football coach. Um, so he has a vested interest in this. Um, and he said, this is talking about Lamont's approach to all this. I think on this particular issue, he feels terrible for the kids and he's trying to figure out a way. But it's been made incredibly difficult by the Department of Health. It hasn't been made incredibly difficult by the Department of Health. The Department of Health has said you shouldn't be doing this. So, you know, I, I think it's just odd that we're having this you know, back and forth debate questioning DPH's recommendations regarding football when, you know, with so many other things that they have asked the, the, the epidemiologists and the public health people for input on, whether it's can we reopen bars, you know, is indoor dining safe? Um, you know, there hasn't been so much pushback on, on what the experts came back with. But in this instance, we see it. And, you know, certainly uh, seniors losing their seasons uh, is emotional and parents are upset about this. But it just seems like, uh, you know, the the anger and, and the mistrust of DPH on this uh, particular issue is a, is a little misguided. Mm, Colin, what do you no, think? I don't know. Sorry. I don't know that Lamont weighing in would be such a big deal anyway. I mean, Lamont has this tendency to say one thing and then a week later say something else. You know, he did that with the school reopenings where he was like, I want all students in the classrooms. And then, you know, people were angry. People said, no, this is not, you know, teachers were angry. Parents were angry. They were, everyone was concerned. 
And then he backed out of that. And, you know, and he kind of said, oh, well, you know what, hybrid might be okay. And, you know, he tends to do that kind of back down when he's faced with a lot of backlash for what he says. So I'm not sure that having Lamont weigh in is, is going to actually really help this argument mm-hmm. very much. That's an interesting point that you bring up, uh, Colin, uh, when Kayla talks about the fact that Lamont has waffled on issues in the past. Now we're hearing from uh, the lawmakers are hearing from a lot of people in the community about this football issue, including students. So do you anticipate that Governor Lamont will uh, take a stand on this? Well, as, as Russell said, the stand he's taken so far is that he wouldn't mind seeing a spring season. But mm-hmm. see, you have this kind of diffusion of responsibility. Mm-hmm. DPH has got a lot to say about whether this should happen in the fall. They didn't say anything about the spring. And in a lot of states, like big states like California, they've canceled their fall football seasons, but they're planning to do something maybe as early as January, which you can do in a state with a fairly temperate climate. So Connecticut's pretty unusual in, in that it doesn't, have a fall season, but it doesn't also have a plan for a spring season. But that's in the lap of the CIAC, which is not a government agency. I guess what I would say about this, and I will make some enemies when I do it, there's a certain percentage of sports parents who are impossible to embarrass by their behavior. You know, and you see it at youth soccer games, you see it in all kinds of places. So we saw it in March when, as you may recall, uh, when the CIAC decided to cancel some spring playoffs. They, they had a mass demonstration, you know, yelling, screaming, unruly mass demonstration outside the CIAC headquarters. Uh, there were eggs thrown, maybe just by one person. It was hard to tell. It was both students and their parents. And, you know, sports parents are not big fans of public health. They are the primary drivers behind early high school start times. They're the ones who object to moving it to a later time. Every single time they'll fight it. There are so many positive health outcomes from having high school uh, start times be later, uh, ranging from fewer fatal traffic accidents to all kinds of mental health stuff and everything. But they'll fight that tooth and nail. And so I don't really regard their attitudes as particularly valid or helpful when it comes to public health. It seems pretty obvious high school football isn't safe with linemen lining up nose to nose, you know, with close encounter tackles, with huddles. You know, I I really don't see how you can do it safely. That's Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. Also here with us, Russell Blair, content editor at the Hartford Current, and Kayla Torres-Ocasio, investigative editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a bill already uh, to uh, change how utilities are regulated in our state. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. This is the Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The General Assembly Energy Committee held another hearing Tuesday on a bill that would change the way Eversource and United Illuminating rates are set. The proposal is a response to customer anger at Eversource following a bigger-than-expected rate hike and then outages that lasted a week or more following that tropical storm in August. Uh, Russell Blair, content editor at the Hartford Current. Are you surprised at this bill, the quick turnaround, and the measures that they're calling for? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, pretty interesting how quickly they did move on this. Uh, you know, the the storm was, uh, you know, only about a month ago, and we've already seen um, a draft proposal. Uh, you know, one of the things that this legislation would do is require 
utilities to reimburse customers for um, spoiled food and medicine in the case of an outage that lasts more than three days. Uh, that was an issue that some people raised um, immediately in, in the aftermath of the storm. Um, and, you know, to go back to our other point about, you know, how long the, the General Assembly can take to debate issues, um, you know, this is a pretty rapid turnaround and, and you know, they're striking while the iron is hot, while there's still um, is considerable, you know, public uh, outrage over, uh, you know, what, what happened with the storm and the long power restorations. Uh, you know, some parts of the state, people were without power for as long as nine days. Uh, and I think it kind of goes back to the uh, point I made earlier about uh, there wasn't a legislative session this year. We are in an election year. And I think lawmakers are looking for something that uh, is popular with constituents. And, and this is something that, uh, you know, Republicans like, Democrats like, uh, you know, the, to see lawmakers uh, going after the utilities and, and trying to get them um, to commit to uh, working more quickly to restore power, making sure they have appropriate crews. Um, and, and all those steps, uh, the utilities at the public hearing yesterday said, uh, you know, certainly that this would drive up costs. They would have to hire more staff. Uh, you know, they warned of future rate increases tied to this. But I think uh, the lawmakers sort of see that the public is on their side right now. And, and they kind of have that momentum to try to do something in a special session to, to address some of these uh, issues that came up with the storm last month. Mm. Uh, Kayla, definitely the public is on the lawmaker's side when it comes to this issue, but uh, we know that uh, these utility companies spend a lot of money on lobbying, and we know that uh, regulating utilities is a very complicated uh, topic. And so while this bill has some good measures in there uh, to protect consumers, to try to hold utilities accountable, what's the likelihood that this will pass? You know, I don't know about that. Um, so they have spent a lot of money on lobbying. Um, we just had a story just a couple of days ago about, you know, how Eversource has spent uh, over a million dollars in just a few years on, um, on lobbying and how, you know, some senators have said, you know, it was money well spent because you don't see, uh, you know, these uh, bills that keep getting put forward passing. You know, you keep seeing piece, bits and pieces here and there, but not anything substantial being passed. Um, and I don't know that this will pass. I think what's surprising me is that it's it's moving as fast as it is. And I think that might be an indication that this might, or at least part of this bill might um, actually move forward. I think it will really depend on how um, lawmakers react to the whole rates will go up if you do this to us um, argument. Because, you know, as they've been cutting staff um, on one side, Eversource and, and UI have also been, have, you know, had record earnings. So they, you know, their earnings keep rising, rising, rising. So I think it'll, it'll depend on whether lawmakers say, you know, no, you'll have to absorb some of this cost or whether they'll just assume that they might absorb some of this cost and not really take that rate, rate payers will take the brunt of this argument seriously. And I don't know how serious that argument is, you know, I don't know if whether this bill will actually help to, you know, address some of that. I think part of what the bill is, is a longer time frame also for, for um, deciding rates. I think it's five months now, um, which I think uh, the pure chief has said is a very, very short period mm -hmm. of time to make these really big decisions. Um, one of the things that's in the bill for sure is, is um, minimum staffing requirements. And I think that's something that they've tried to do in the past and hasn't worked out because of the argument, um, like Russell said, you know, the Eversource and, and UI have said, well, if we have to have people on staff, even when there aren't storms, 
we're paying these salaries year round, you know, that's going to drive up costs because we're not using these people year round. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I, I'm, I'm not sure if that part of the law is if the bill is going to pass. Um, you know, I, I really kind of doubt that. But um, but at this point, I, I don't know, because everything's moving so fast that, you know, like Russell said, they have right payers on their side. So it, it, it might be a different argument this time. Uh, Russell, we were talked about some of the uh, proposals in this bill. I believe one of them uh, would allow Pura to factor grid management into any approval of future rates and also limit compensation of executives if Pura finds it didn't deliver services. Can Pura do that? Uh, I'm not too sure, sure about that. I think there's a lot in here and it's a very ambitious bill uh, and certainly um, you know, Eversource as a regulated and UI as regulated utilities, uh, you know, Pura does have some ability to, to impact some of these things. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that they can do is, uh, you know, all, all the energy legislation and, and regulation is incredibly complex. But I think there is a method where, um, you know, they can say that, uh, you know, certain increased costs the utility can't recoup from ratepayers. Uh, you know, I think there's a way that they can manage that, um, you know, but, but the CEO's pay, um, you know, I, that to me seems like something that, you know, while it may be popular with the public, uh, you know, I don't know enough about the workings of Pura, if that's something that, uh, you know, that they can mandate through uh, legislation, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, an interesting dynamic. There's also uh, a proposal in there about requiring that they have somebody who is a designated consumer advocate on the, the board of directors of the company. Uh, you know, again, I don't know if Pura can uh, can actually enforce, you know, how, how a company's board of directors is made up. Um, but it's certainly an ambitious, uh, an ambitious document, uh, you know, a lot in there. And, you know, I think sort of where the Eversource lobbying power comes in is uh, between now and, and what the final product uh, looks like and, and what changes are made. And that'll be uh, something that'll be interesting to track. You're listening to The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. We're going to take a quick break. And after that, we want to talk about how one Connecticut Police Department is dealing with calls from the public that are racially motivated. Stay with us. This is the Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Over the last couple of years, Connecticut lawmakers have passed laws to rein in police departments racially profiling residents and traffic stops. But what can be done to keep members of the public from calling the police when they see a person of color and think that's reason alone to call 911? Well, Fairfield Police Chief Christopher Liddy said his department will no longer respond to calls from people if the only reason the caller can give for their concern is the person isn't white and that makes them suspicious. Uh, in this story of the Hearst, Connecticut story, Colin, uh, the police chief in Fairfield said his department gets a call like this about once a week. Was that surprising to you? Not at all. And and I think he's right to a certain degree to, to shift some of the focus back on to citizen complaints. Because look, you know, there are bad cops and there are racist cops and there are cops who abuse their authority and they would under almost any circumstances. But there also is a problem with the citizenry. There's a lot of cops who are doing this stuff, not because they've chosen to do it, but because we asked them to do it. So a couple of quick examples. A few years ago, there was quite a scandal uh, when Doug Glanville, former Major League Baseball player, was approached by a West Hartford police officer uh, to sit when he was shoveling snow. The question was, was that his driveway, blah, blah, blah. This this is because 
there was a complaint in West Hartford. West Hartford actually has a rule that says you can't go door to door offering to shovel snow. There was a black man in a neighborhood not far from Glanville's walking around with a shovel offering to do shoveling and a cop got sent out. Now, if you think that cop wanted to spend his day driving around looking for a rogue snow shoveler, uh, I think you're wrong. I think this is because of us. Um, and, and so we have to accept that fact, too. A lot of times our, our reaction, we see something, we're not sure what it is. We roll up the windows, lock the car doors and maybe call the cops rather than even taking a couple of minutes to, to you know, make sure we understand what's happening. Uh, Kayla, when I read the story, I was surprised that uh, Chief Liddy um, had to make this statement. But also I was thinking about just how police are trained. Isn't this something that dispatch and police officers are already trained to do, like to get more information before uh, heading out to see uh, what's so suspicious? Yeah, that was one thing that I thought was interesting. So a lot of the departments that Hearst uh, reached out to did say you know, we don't see this as an issue because our dispatchers are trained to ask questions. They're not, you know, they're not just trained to say, oh, okay, you're just, you know, your complaint is this. And so we'll send an officer out, but to ask, well, what is it that, that it's happening? What is it that's happening? Who is doing what? Um, and so it did surprise me that Liddy was basically saying, we're, we're going out there and, and, and almost kind of saying we're, we're not asking the question because if you were asking the question, then maybe you wouldn't be responding to these calls, you would assume, right? Um, but it, 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 it is surprising to think that that's not part of the whole conversation from the very beginning of a, of a complaint. But at the same time, knowing, you know, the kind of culture and climate that we're in these days and, um, you know, you know, there's this running joke about Karens, you know, mm -hmm. calling um, the police. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's a joke because it's such a, you know, well-known joke at this point because it happens so often. So, you know, it's not surprising that these things are happening. It is surprising that a department is, is saying we're, we're, we weren't handling these very correctly to begin with. And we're, we're going to stop doing this. We're not going to accept any more of these types of calls um, to make that kind of, you know, uh, statement is, is, is surprising. Mm. Uh, we know, Russell, there have been high-profile incidents where uh, you see uh, someone's uh, cell phone video. I'm thinking of Christian Cooper, who was the black man who was birding uh, in New York City, and a white woman uh, called the police uh, saying that um, you know he was threatening her, and obviously that wasn't the case. I mean, it goes viral on social media, but it's, uh, it's harder for people maybe to think about this is happening in their community as, to, community as well. Yeah, one thing I thought was interesting about um, the whole Amy Cooper issue is that that was one of the many things that was uh, included in the police accountability bill that the legislature mm -hmm. in Connecticut passed this summer was uh, stiffer penalties. Uh, you know, I think you can actually now be charged if they prove that you uh, made a 911 call, uh, you know, solely based on somebody's race, you could get a misuse of the 911 system charge. Um, and, and I thought the uh, in the Hearst story, the quote from Scott Esdale was was kind of enlightening that, you know, it and it goes to the point that Caleb just made that uh, it's kind of sad that a department has to have a policy to say we're no longer going to do this, um, you know, sort of says a lot about, uh, you know, where we are and, and a lot of the progress that still needs to be made that, um, you know, these are uh, citizen complaints that are coming in and, and sort of up until now, uh, you know, the departments were handling them and, and sending people out. Um, so I think that uh, it shows that, uh, you know, there, there still is a lot of work to do, be done, even in a place like Connecticut, where people may think that, 
you know, we're more more progressive or we don't have uh, these same kind of issues, but we certainly do. Uh, and, and we saw Fairfield address that and we saw even the state legislature uh, address that in the police accountability bill. You mentioned Scott Esdale from the Connecticut NAACP. Uh, Caleb, before we move on, you know, we're talking about, you know, why this may happen. Uh, People who have implicit bias who think someone uh, who doesn't look like them and doesn't live in a certain neighborhood must be up to some some no nothing good. But at the same time, this kind of interaction uh, that uh, communities of color have with police, it doesn't help uh, that situation of having trust in the law enforcement. I mean, especially when you see, again, and these protests that are still calling for police accountability. I mean, this is something that, that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do, and I've covered Bridgeport for a, a long time, and, and you know, a lot of the times you, you, the things you're covering when it comes to police and community is we want more we want to know our police officers more. We want to know who they are. We want them to know who we are so that we don't get into these situations where police officers come out. They have no clue who they're dealing with in this neighborhood and and, and these kinds of things happen. And so I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with that is, and, and in these big cities, how do you kind of handle that? How do you, how do police officers know, you know, who people are in communities or who, you know, how certain neighborhoods function and, and how, you know, you have um, people who who might, you know, be kind of troublemakers, you know, and, and, and you know them and you can kind of spot them. And then you have people who, who are not, you know, you don't, you don't see them very often. You don't. So it's, it's hard to say, you know, kind of what can be done about this, but there's definitely, definitely issues. Um, and I think a lot of it does come down to kind of the community policing and, and officers kind of knowing the communities and being out there and, and, and knowing when they see something themselves, you know, not being having to depend as much on, on people calling in these things, but kind of being out in the community and, 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 and kind of watching and, and how communities function. We just heard from State Senator Gary Winfield, who writes, this is exactly why a portion of the police accountability bill deals with this issue of calling the police because someone is black. Uh, We wanted to move on to feats of strength and airing of grievances. We've got a little under four minutes, Colin. Okay, I'll go fast. Um, So I was thinking about something that addresses a a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. And one of the networks has been rerunning Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights is an amazing series set in Dillon, Texas, uh, a town consumed by football and football passion. It is uh, was way ahead of its time in addressing questions of race. Uh, there was one episode where the black players did a walkout because of how they felt that they had been treated. Um, it, it's, it was way ahead of its time in everything. But in terms of that whole question of how do you keep football from overwhelming your good judgment? How do you keep football as a terrific life-enhancing adjunct to the rest of your existence as opposed to a be-all and end-all. It would be a great series for a lot of people to watch right now. Russell Blair. Uh, my feat of strength, uh, I know you guys mentioned this last week, but the, I've just been so captivated by the beefalo story. Um, <laughs> I think that with everything going on in the world, uh, it's just this great light-hearted story uh, that Jesse Leavenworth uh, and, and other reporters uh, have been covering. And the latest, I guess, is that the uh, Terryville Police Department is now talking about using a, a female cow to try to lure the beefalo out of hiding. Uh, they've been trying to find it with drones. Uh, it's just the kind of sort of silly, great community story um, that's kind of uplifting and, and positive mm-hmm. in a time when 
uh, there's so much negative news out there. And that's the runaway beefalo, a cross between a bison and cattle that's in the Plymouth area uh, on the way to the slaughterhouse. But he got out. Another strange thing about that, uh, Russell, is I believe the Plymouth Police Union is doing a GoFundMe to raise enough money. Yeah, they've, to send... uh, they've, they've raised money. <laughs> raise money to uh, put the beefalo in an animal sanctuary once it's been uh, it's been captured so it's no longer destined for the slaughterhouse so um, just a, a great story about a community coming together over this bizarre uh, bizarre animal that's been loose now for over a month and Kayla I think the the news that um, kind of captivates me is any story that has anything to do with no problems on the first days of school, because as my kids start school today, uh, you know, that's been kind of top of mind for me and, and being, you know, mom, secretary, you know, half time teacher, um, any stories that have anything to do with distance learning and actually going in school in person and, and doing well and not having COVID cases like Summers had today, um, you know, that's, those are the kinds of stories I look forward to reading. I just want to say uh, our producer, Matt Dwyer, uh, chatted that maybe we could send some high school football players to help find the beefalo. <laughs> you can email Matt at mdwyer. <laughs> I want to thank our uh, panelists uh, for being on the show, especially Kayla Torres Ocasio, your first time on The Wheelhouse. Thank you so much, investigative Yay. editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Yes, good time. Also, Russell Blair, content editor at the Hartford Current, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer, our technical producer is Cat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back next week.